Father, our prayer is that the darling of heaven would be glorified. that his brothers and sisters would be blessed as we get into your word this morning. In Jesus' name. I remember the first time I heard that the darling of heaven, I never could get it out of my mind. Is Jesus the darling of heaven or what? Is there any other darling besides him? My name is Ed, but my real name is Jeremiah. <laughs> so get used to it. I'm not a prophet. I'm just, you've heard of the wandering Jew. I'm a wandering Jew. I'm also the weeping Jew. It is so good to see you all this morning. Susie and I have just been looking forward so much to coming here. We just, we just miss you so much. All of you, and uh, I, the greeting that we got when we came in, I mean, uh, it was just absolutely incredible. It's just absolutely so wonderful to be here. I'm certainly thankful that we're not at the Optimist Club of Claxton, <laughs> and I'm thankful that we were able to uh, recite together the catechism rather than that trash that's on the other side of that rag that's hanging on the wall. Amen. <laughs> amen. Everybody can say amen. Amen. I'm going to be speaking this morning out of the New American Standard, okay? But the ESV follows uh, very, very closely, so you shouldn't have any problem whatsoever in, in following along. Uh, it, you have seen in your handout that the text for this morning is Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44, and chapter 25, 1 through 13. And you're probably wondering, are we ever going to get out of here? with such a long text like that. But I want to begin, uh, just as an introduction, I just want to begin, if you would open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 24. I just want to read the first three verses just to get us started. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And to begin with, when we open up a text like the Olivet Discourse, the first thing that, we, that we're going to think of, aha, prophecy. We're going to find out when the end of the world is going to come, when Jesus is going to return. A friend of mine uh, by the name of Neil Silverberg, always refers to this kind of stuff as Christian tea leaves. That's not what we're going to do here this morning. That is not 
our purpose. Our purpose is altogether different than trying to figure all of that out. I am, though, going to go into some introductory remarks, which you might agree with or not agree with, and that's fine, uh, in order to be able to set the stage properly for the particular things that I believe that the Lord wants us to hear this week and by God's grace next week as well. For quite a while now, I have been much occupied with the Lord's return. I guess maybe one of the reasons is because being 78 years old, it, there, there you go, I'm already beginning to talk like Methuselah, <laughs> but I'm probably older than anybody else here. And so if three score and 10 is what we're promised, I'm already past that. I'm a whole lot closer to seeing Jesus than any of you, all things being considered, all things being equal. I'm really close. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being with my Lord. I'm also looking forward to my Lord coming to make this mess right. Because that's what this is. We are living in a mess. Not just because of the political situation that we have now, but the world has always been that way. And there needs to be a longing for the Lord's return. But can I ask you a question? When was the last time you got around brothers and sisters that really talked about the Lord's return, that there was an ache in their heart? They wanted, truly, they wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted the Lord to come. Or when it, when, when it comes that uh, uh, we hear of a brother or a sister passing away, we go to a funeral or, or a, a, more, a, a memorial service or whatsoever, we have an altogether different view. Do we really want to leave this world and be with the Lord? The answer to that should be yes. Although none of us is going to like the circumstances of our leaving if you know what I mean. But that's what we have to go through in order to be with him. This is, the heart, this is the burden of my heart. I believe it is the burden of the Lord in this passage of scripture that I pray that all of us would be impacted with as we get into this text. The early church, you read through the whole New Testament, the early church uh, had an attitude of longing for the Lord's return. It's everywhere throughout the pages of Scripture. And I believe there are certain things that as, as the Lord's sons and daughters, his, the, our father's children, there are th certain attitudes that we need to have as well. There needs, there needs to be amongst us a longing for the Lord's return. That should be something that just doesn't happen every once in a while. This should be a way of life with us. There also needs to be a sense of expectancy that the Lord could come at any time. And let me say this, please do not let your millennial views mess you up. There is not a one of us here or anyone else for that matter that is so sure on the views of the millennium. Let's put that out of the way. Don't get sure, I don't care whether you're, uh, you're uh, amill or post-mill or futurist or preterist or whatever it is. We need to put that aside. The Lord can return at any time. Let's not get bogged down 
with signs and wonders. I had enough of that years ago as I've been in the Lord, uh, what is it now, 49 years. I cut my teeth, unfortunately, on uh, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. It took the Lord's mercy in many years to be able to get me out of uh, that understanding of, uh, uh, of eschatology or prophecy, so to speak. So a longing for his return, a sense of his expectation, and an attitude of watchfulness and faithfulness while we wait for him to come. Now, this is all introductory material. Matthew's gospel contains five major discourses. Some people believe it's based on the, the five books of Moses. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I happen to know that there are five different, uh, five groups of teaching discourses that the Lord does at the end of each one. It says, and when Jesus had finished. That's the key to look for, when Jesus had finished. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. That's chapters 5 through 7. Secondly, we have the commissioning of the 12 in chapter 10. Third, we have the kingdom parables in chapter 13. Fourthly, we have the discourse on church discipline in chapter 18. And then lastly, we have the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. We're going to be dealing with 24 and 25, but what I want to do uh, by way of introduction and, and getting a lay of the land first, we're going to start, and if you would, turn over to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Excuse me. So we're going to talk for a minute about the setting of the Olivet Discourse. And I think it's very, very important that we do this in order to understand where it is that I believe the Lord is taking us this morning and next week as well. <clears throat> Jesus had just, when you, read, when you read Matthew 23, you have to, first of all, you have to understand, I'm Jewish. It's not easy for me to read. It's not easy for me to read the Old Testament because, as you know, uh, we weren't all that successful in serving the Lord the way we should. I pray that none of us would ever be saddled with that, uh, with that description of our life as well. I believe the church, God has called the church to do a whole lot more than Israel ever did. And that's our responsibility, brothers and sisters. So... Jesus had just finished denouncing the Pharisees and lamenting over Jerusalem. And he said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Based on this, Jesus is walking out of the temple and he has his disciples with him. And they just, they've seen the temple so many different times, but it seems on this occasion, Master, look, look at the temple. Look at the See, the temple was everything. The temple as the tabernacle was the presence of God in the midst of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. 
if you, if you, as you read about the tabernacle, you'll see that the tabernacle was in the, in the center and all of the tents, all of the different tribes, uh, they, uh, they, they sit, pitched their tents around and God was right in their midst in the Holy of Holies. And the same thing happened in the temple. So they point out this temple to the Lord. It says, Jesus came out from the temple. We're now in 24 verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the temple buildings to him. In response, Jesus made a, star, a this startling statement, which is in verse 2. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, when we read that, it doesn't have the same impact on us as it did on them because, again, the temple was the way of life. Even though at this particular time, starting back in, in, in Babylon, the synagogue is the synagogue, synagogues were formed because they didn't have the temple and the priesthood and the worship in, in Babylon, in the diaspora, so the synagogue came about, and when we come into the New Testament, we find that synagogue life is there. We see Jesus going on, on uh, the Sabbath to the synagogue. We see Paul doing the same thing when he travels through the Roman world. First place he goes, he goes to a synagogue. Why? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. When the Jews wouldn't listen, he leaves the synagogue, or he gets asked to leave. As I would say, he receives the left foot of fellowship. And he leaves and, and goes and brings the gospel to the Gentiles. So they point, Jesus, when Jesus makes this statement, not one stone will left standing upon another, that had to be such a shock because Israel already went through this when the temple was destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Now Jesus is saying the same thing is going to happen. Now I remember back in the 70s, I had an opportunity to go to Israel for, uh, for a whole, spend a whole month in Israel, and I remember going to the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall was not part of the temple. I believe the Wailing Wall, I believe it was uh, something that, uh, uh, that cordoned off the court of the Gentiles or something like that. It was an outer wall. That's the only thing that's left. Everything in the temple, when, when 70 AD came, everything that Jesus prophesied was going to happen happened. Not one stone was left upon another. <clears throat> I understand that what happened, there was so much gold in the temple that the Romans took the stones apart and set fire and everything to be able to get the gold out of all the, out of all of the stones and everything else. So there was nothing that there was nothing left. So Jesus makes this startling statement. You will not see, uh, do, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This statement is what prompts, in verse 3, two questions that the disciples asked Jesus, okay? Two questions. Basically, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Actually, one question, okay? Because for Jews in Jesus' day and before, Jews were looking for the coming of Messiah, but they had no understanding that Messiah was going to come two different times, we know that because we have our New Testament. That is a mystery in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. First example would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist who says, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How would you like to have that kind of direct communication with the Holy Spirit? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it's the same John that after he sees that Jesus ain't quite acting the way he thought he was going to, sends his disciples to Jesus to ask a question. Are you the one or shall we look for another? Another example, first chapter of the book of Acts. This is after the crucifixion. First chapter of the book of Acts. What do the disciples say? They say to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this picture is, okay? Jesus is standing here. The disciples are here. The disciples say to Jesus, will you? And Jesus turns around and says, no, but you. Will you? Is this when you're going to do this? Is this when David is coming back? Is this when the Romans are going to leave? Is this when the whole Davidic kingdom is going to come? All of the promises in the Old Testament? No, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other part, uttermost parts of the earth. By the way, what Jesus said to his apostles then, he speaks to us as well. That's still our responsibility, isn't it? Isn't the Great Commission for all of us, or was that just for uh, the apostles in the early church? That's for us as well. So they ask him these two questions. Tell us, when will these things happen? The second question, and what will be the sign uh, of your coming? Actually, one question. So Jesus answers. Now, this is very, very important for us to understand. If we're going to understand the material that we're going to get into, it's imperative that we understand this. Jesus answers their first question, when will, these, when will these things happen in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 31? That's just my opinion, okay? Because you could pick up many, many different commentaries, articles and stuff like this on the, uh, on the Olivet Discourse, and you will find that there are others that have other opinions. This is my understanding. It's taken me forever to get to this particular understanding, but this is not a hill that I'm willing to die on, okay? nor is it a hill that either one, any one of us should die on. What we're willing to die on is Jesus Christ, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who was born of a virgin, who God sent, who is the propitiation for all of our sins, who reconciled us to God, and because of that, we are justified. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are adopted by God. On those things, that hill, we are willing to die. On eschatology, no. So this is my opinion. But my opinion on this has very little to do with what we're going to get into here in just a couple of minutes. So if you don't, if you don't agree with me on this, that's fine. That's fine. You know, the only people that want to fight about eschatology are dispensationalists. All the other schools of eschatology, no, you know, you believe this, you're post-mill, you're R-mill, you're preterist or whatever. Yeah, I don't agree with you or whatever, but it's when you get into this thing with dispensationalism, you better believe what we believe or else you're a liberal, okay? So let's get, let's get that out of the way. Jesus answers their first question in 24, 4 through 31, which relates to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD under Vespasian and his son Titus and the Roman legions, which started, I think, what, about 68? between 68 and 70, 
uh, when, uh, Jer when Jerusalem was sieged and so on and so forth until the temple was thoroughly destroyed in 70 AD. He doesn't answer their second question the way they expected it to, to be answered. He answers the disciples' second question by exhorting them to be on the alert and to be ready. And that's what I believe is the, the burden of the Lord in, in, in the Olivet Discourse for us. I believe that that was the burden on Jesus' heart for his disciples then, and it's the Lord's burden for us as well, that we are to be watchful and to we are to be faithful until he returns. So it's crucial to our understanding of the Olivet Discourse that we see that, first of all, there are no signs as far as the second question. All of the signs are part of the first question. When it comes to the second question, which I believe starts in verse 36, no more signs. All we have is one exhortation after another about being watchful and about being faithful. I counted up all of the verses in Matthew 24 and 25. There's 97 verses, 97, only 28 of which answer the disciples' first question. You think maybe the Lord is trying to say something. What we are really interested in, we want to know when you're coming back. Who, who, who is the man of sin? Who's the antichrist? Who is it that's restraining him? All of these different things. You know, completely, and don't get me wrong, it's, that's, all of that is scripture, and I believe there is an understanding to those things. But trying to figure out the future is not what it's all about. The weight of Jesus' teaching in this discourse has to do with watchfulness and faithfulness, not the signs of the times. Only 28 which answer the disciples' first question. So in telling his disciples when we're going to return, Jesus uses the remainder of his discourse to exhort them concerning the, on what they are supposed to do while they're waiting for his return. In Matthew 24, 36 through 44, and chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, Jesus exhorts his disciples concerning watchfulness, which that's what we're going to look at this morning. And in Matthew 24, 45 through 51, and 25, 14 through 30, Jesus exhorts his disciples concerning faithfulness. It's very, very, it's vital, really, that we understand this. What is Jesus primarily talking about? What is the weight of the emphasis that is here. That is what God wants to speak to us. So we're going to look at these exhortations concerning watchfulness. There's three of them, the way I understand this. First, we have the lesson of Noah. Secondly, we have the parabolic illustration of the householder and the thief. And thirdly, we have the parable of the ten virgins. So let's look at uh, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 41. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You know, in a passage of scripture that, like this, uh, this gets as close as any scripture that there is to, I thought, I thought Jesus is God. Doesn't God know everything? I believe that in his humiliation, in his incarnation, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, he did not grasp equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself, took on the form of, of a servant. And so I believe that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit in his incarnation, of course, like no one else. He received the Spirit without measure. I always do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what the Father is saying. That's all Jesus did. Jesus was totally dependent upon his Father for everything. If Jesus was, what does that say about us? If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit that bad, totally dependent, what does that say about us? Maybe that's the reason why in the Sermon of the Mount, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And not just, not just day laborer poor, but absolute total being poverty stricken of spirit, totally dependent upon God for everything. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in, the, in, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So Jesus begins his exhortation here with these words, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son alone, but the father, the father alone. Then he says, then he says that this was, this, and this is the thing to understand in this whole thing about Noah. He talks about the attitude that the people had in the days of Noah. Now, when we read through Genesis, we know that it was such a sinful time that God was getting ready as Noah was preparing the ark for, what, 120 years, I think? God was getting ready to completely wipe out the human race. So we know that sin abounded. Jesus doesn't men mention anything about sin here. He basically, what, what does he say? For in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, what were they doing? They were occupied with the ordinary things of life. Beloved, does that sound familiar? Is that where we are at sometimes, occupied with the ordinary things of life? Our families, our marriages, our children, our jobs, our, all of our desires, our hobbies. I mean, whatever it is, I mean, we could get so completely uh, uh, overburdened with the things of this world that we don't look for the coming of the Lord and we lose our desire just to be with the Lord. I believe that if I was asked for a show of hands, which I won't, you'd say, yeah, been there and done that. It's the ordinary things of life, the drudgery of living in this world. Thank God for the joys. Thank God for all of the blessings. But brothers and sisters, life is hard, as all of you know already. And the older you get, the harder it gets. I know that from experience. The older you get, the harder it gets. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't be like them. Don't be so bogged down with the ordinary things of life. Don't be occupied with them. Be watchful. 
Look for the Lord. Have a desire for the Lord to come or to be with the Lord. So Jesus' teaching about the days of Noah also brings up this question. Let me, let me say this also. Let me say it here before I go on any further. None of us know when the Lord is going to return. Deal with your sin now. Receive counsel now. Whatever it is that the Lord has been trying to speak to you through scripture, through circumstances, come to God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the assistance of the Holy Spirit, deal with it now. Let's not have the attitude that we're going to read about in a little while from 2 Peter. Oh, yeah, you know, they've been saying his coming is, yeah, but the Lord says, no, a thousand years is one day and one day is, is a thousand years. The besetting sin that we all have, deal with it now. What God wants you to do with your life, do it now. None of us has got any guarantee that we will breathe air tomorrow morning. I'm 78 and a whole lot closer to glory than any of you are, as I said, all things being equal. But that doesn't mean to say that there aren't people here who could beat me to it. And we don't know. What's our attitude? Oh, I've got time. So the Lord has been telling you, the Lord has been, uh, 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 you know, speaking to you about something that he wants you to do with, his, with your life or something like that, ministry, or uh, I, I don't know if you remember uh, when I preached last year, they let me preach once a year, but thank God. <laughs> the, uh, one, once a year, we got to give the Jew a chance. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, you remember what, what I, when I preached out of uh, Hebrews chap, ha, chapter 10 about uh, 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 all of us uh, uh, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be doing that. We need to be speaking into each other's life. We need to be taking our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God here and now. Don't wait. Don't put off anything. You do not know when the thief is coming. Jesus talks about this. You don't know. If you did know, you would do something about it. But by God's grace, we don't know. For so long, I asked, Lord, why is so many, so many of these prophecies in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and so many, why is it so confusing? Why can't anybody figure it out? And I really believe the Lord said, because I don't want anybody to figure it out. Because if they figured it out, they know exactly what's going to happen, and then they kind of hang around until it was time for the Lord to return. So we always got to be on the edge of our seat. We always have to have our lamps filled with oil. We always have to be ready because we don't know. And the last thing in the world we want to do, brothers and sisters, is stand before a holy God and find out what God wanted to do with our lives, and we didn't do it. We're reformed people. Yes? We believe in justification by faith. Yes? Is it a hill we're willing to die on? 
But there's more in the Bible than justification by faith. Paul deals with it in Romans and Galatians and a little bit in the third chapter of uh, uh, Philippians. There's more than justification by faith. There's nothing before it, but there's more after it. And so the th you, might, you might think that the way I'm saying, but boy, this is a real guilt trip. I got to do all of these. What about justification by faith? What about my right standing before God? We have that. But we need to be faithful as well. They're hard sayings in the word of God, warnings and hard sayings. We should not steer away from them. They are there. They were put there as a means that God has given to make sure that we all persevere. Isn't that interesting? We're going to persevere because God saved us. It was monogistic. God alone saved us. But yet we're going to persevere because there are things we need to do as well in our life. It's God and us in our walk before the Lord. Whatever it is that God is speaking to you, if we don't go any further, whatever that is, you know, a little bit of fear goes a long, long way. When I hit passages of scripture that seem to be pretty hard, I love to collect these books on the, the so-called hard sayings of Jesus, the hard sayings of scripture. It always, I read it, I say, oop, I really got to stop. Sober moment. Sober moment. This is all scripture is, is profitable for, you can quote it, I can't, they got, their house almost has the whole Bible uh, memorized. When you come to the hard passages, don't just say, oh, that's not for us. That's, that's for unbelievers. These particular words that Jesus is saying, who, is he, who did he speak it to? He spoke to his disciples. Jesus is not speaking in the Olivet Discourse to unbelievers. He's speaking to the apostles, not just believers, the apostles. This is what he's speaking to them. Whatever it is that God is dealing with you, do it now. Don't put it off. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Whatever price you got to pay, I was, I was sharing with a brother this morning that years ago I got this poster that I wish I would have kept it. It was a great big poster. Years ago, uh, even before my time, which is, in the, as my kids used to say, Daddy, tell me what it was like in the olden days. <laughs> I didn't know that 1943 and everything was the olden days. But <laughs> So I had this poster, and it had, it had this big, you know, before washing machines, it had this big wash tub. You know, and there was the rollers were up on it, and it had a, a full life-size Raggedy Ann. And the Raggedy Ann doll was halfway through the rollers, and the caption said, the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable. <laughs> Been there and done that. It's not easy to grow in God. I know a Bible teacher that used to talk about, uh, a walk with the Lord, used to call it death on the installment plan. <laughs> and that's what it is. It's a constantly dying to the world, the flesh, and the devil. So remember what Jesus said. Uh, let's forget about the pre-tribulation rapture. 
Secondly, the parabolic illustration of the householder and the thief. That's Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not which you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken, excuse me, broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Jesus, uh, when will these things happen? And when will be the sign of your coming? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. That's his response to their question. The key word here is therefore. The word therefore links this parable to what Jesus had just been saying about uh, the days prior to the days of Noah. So he began his, he, Jesus began his exhortation on the days of Noah by saying, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Now he begins this parabolic illustration of the householder and the thief by saying, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. This parabolic uh, illustration is stressing preparation. We have to be ready. If you knew when the thief was coming, you would be on the alert. And this, this is just like Paul's warning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that, that that day would overtake you like a thief. So notice the suddenness in both uh, what Jesus is saying in this, parab in this uh, parabolic illustration of the thief, the household and the thief, and what Paul is saying, the same thing, the suddenness, the lack of preparedness, both in these particular texts. How much more should we be prepared, on the alert, seeing that we do not know when the Lord is coming? Here's several particular, here's some verses taken from uh, the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, which is mentioned four times in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Matthew uh, 4, 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 33, but be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 44, for this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And verse uh, chapter 25, verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So it's so important that we understand Jesus' exhortation in the light of the two questions that the disciples are, are asking and the way that the Lord is answering. But remember what Jesus said, be on the alert, be ready. Brings us to the parable of the ten virgins. Now, any one of these things, you could take a whole sermon on any one of these things and, uh, and even maybe more than one sermon on, on any one of these things 
and go week after week after week exege exegeting it. What I'm trying to do here is to, I'm instead of being at ground level, I'm trying to go up to about the 30,000 foot level and look down over the whole Olivet Discourse and get, and, and get a feel for it and find out why is Jesus saying this? You know, th this, is, this is so important in any scripture, any time we read scripture, Let's take the Gospels for existence. The Gospels are not biographies of the Lord's life. Each one of the Gospel writers has a reason, a specific reason why he's writing that his, his Gospel. And all four of them are different because they all have a different reason for writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> We've got to know what it was in their mind and in their heart as they sat down or, or began to dictate, to ascribe uh, what we find in our Bibles. What is, what do they want to say? What, what, is the, what is the real message here? When we go into Matthew, all of Matthew's gospel from the opening verses in Jesus' genealogy where we find the names of what? Four Gentile women? And by the way, when you look in the lives of four Gentile women, in every single case, God used those women to save Israel. They're not just four, oh, let's put in some women there because, you know, who knows what, we, we don't want to upset uh, the women's lib movement. <laughs> so we'll mention some women's names. They're in there for a purpose. Gentiles' names are in there for a purpose. Why is it in Matthew, and only in Matthew, that the word church appears? Was it Matthew 16 and Matthew 18? Only in Matthew. Why is it when we read through Matthew, if you read and you remember what you're reading, it's all leading up to the Olivet Discourse and 70 AD. All of it. Uh, you're in 1 Peter. Is 1 Peter just a collection of verses? Or did Peter have a reason for writing that letter? We have to understand what the reason is for the writing of the document if we're going to understand what all the different verses in it are. Of course, that's, that's the job of our brother and anybody else that fills this purpose or, or pulpit or any other pulpit. It's called expository preaching. It's not just exegeting a verse or several verses or a pericope, but how does this fit into the overall message of what the author of this book is wanting to convey because it's only then when we do that that we will know what it is that the Lord wants to speak to us. So we come up to this 30,000 foot level and everything and we look down and we can see the whole layout of the Olivet Discourse and we find, but not only that, the Olivet Discourse within its context of the rest of the book of Matthew and why it is that God was trying to say to our brother Matthew in this particular gospel. That's how we can come to an understanding of what Jesus is wanting to say here. And what he's wanting to say is, brothers and sisters, watch. Watch. Don't fall asleep. Don't get groggy in your life. Don't be lethargic in your life. It's easy to do that. I know, all of us know. Don't do that. This is Jesus speaking to us. We need to, what, what did Jesus say in so many places? Let he who has ears to hear, 
Let him hear. The parable of the ten virgins. Then the king of heaven will be compar- the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Just like the disciples in the Mount of Olives when Jesus was praying. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, there's one of those places right at the end where he said, wait a minute, Lord, that can't be me. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That can't be me. Who is Jesus speaking to? Eleven out of the twelve belong to him. Who is he speaking to? That's one of the hard sayings that we run up against in Scripture that we should not allow our doctrine of justification to get in the way and explain it away. The hard sayings are there along with all of the other sayings, just like does man have responsibility? Is man responsible? But is salvation solely by the grace of God? Well, doesn't that make us kind of like robots? What happens to man's responsibility? I thought God did it all. Uh, was it was it Spurgeon that said all of these things are friends? They're all there. They're all there, and we can't. The danger is when we when we get some sort of theological system, is to always to try to explain away certain things that that Scripture is trying to say to us, because it doesn't fit. You know, think of a think of a roll top desk. You ever see a roll top desk when you open it up? There's all these little cubby holes in there, and this is what we do in our theology. We learn this and we learn that. We file it in this little hole, and we file it. In, oh, I learned this. We file it here, and we file it there. We get all these little pieces. All the pieces have got to fit. So again, don't, don't, please pass over things like this. Remember when you read this, Jesus is speaking to apostles. Matthew was here. Peter was here. James was here. John was here. And I don't remember the other names. I'll have to ask one of one of Chris's children, and they'll be able to tell me. Every time I go over to their house to babysit the kids, I leave and I say to Susie, Susie, half the time I can't remember my own name and these kids are raffling off scripture. <laughs> Praise God that they could do that. So again, re, you know, understand this for what it is. This parable is based on a Jewish Jewish uh, uh, courtship and wedding customs of the day. Uh, First, a contract was made 
uh, between the, uh, you know, the, was made and a bride price was paid. I've ministered over in Nigeria two times and I was involved with weddings and stuff like this. And in Nigeria, there is a bride price. Brothers, you want to get yourself a wife, you better save up your more money because you're going to have to pay for her. That's the way it is. Probably in India also. So a contract was made and a bride price was set. The bridegroom would then depart to his father's house saying to the bride, I go to prepare a place for you. Does this sound familiar? In my father's house are many dwelling places. If, I if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is all based on the Jewish wedding customs of the day. So Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, the church, is his bride. The bride would have to wait sometimes a long time uh, preparing herself, uh, it, 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 which is exactly what we're supposed to do, is we're waiting for the bridegroom also. During this period, she was referred to as being consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. And during this time, the bride and her attendants would have to stay in a constant state of readiness. And then what would happen is that sometime when they least expected it, and it would be at night, there would be a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And that's when they would enter into the wedding and the wedding feast and so on and so forth. And I want to, along this line, I want to read a, a, a passage of scripture from, uh, this is from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So remember, brothers and sisters, what Jesus said, be on the alert and be ready. And, and again, I want to belabor this point. Oh, oh, I'm not finished yet. I have some examples. I just want to read to you just really quickly. Two examples from Luke's gospel. Simeon, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then it says, when he saw the Lord, he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory of your people Israel. So here was this man who was looking for the consolation of Israel. This is what defined his life, and it's what should define our life as well. And we have next the prophetess Anna. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, that's when Jesus was presented in the temple, she came up and began to, giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Quoting Paul again from, uh, from his letter to the Thessalonians. Now, as to times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Walea saying, peace and safety, 
Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day will overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be on the alert and to be sober. Something that we learned from our brother Peter in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, literally, having girded up your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just a quick comment here. I, I've spoken about this in the past. I th God used this particular verse in my life back in 2000. Uh, I was going through a trial. It was very, very difficult. I was mad about some things that were happening. The Lord, in his mercy, was gracious to show me that I was mad at him. You know, anytime we get mad, we're mad at God. If you believe scripture, if you believe that God is totally sovereign in your life, then who causes when we go through things? Who's the first cause? There might be a second cause, but who's the first cause in everything, yet without sin? It's God. And so God showed me I was mad at him, and I had to repent, and I had to understand that everything that was happening in my life, my sovereign Savior was the one who was allowing that to happen, bringing it into my life. And in my studies about, about suffering, I came to this passage of Scripture in, in 1 Peter. First, uh, was it verses uh, 4 through 6 or something like that when it talks about you know, various trials, but then coming to this 13th verse. When that 13th verse hit me, and you've probably all had experiences when you come to a certain passage of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit just ministered to your heart, and it stays there for the rest of your life. This one stayed there. Set your hope, Ed, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't set it anywhere in this world. Thank God. I thank God for having a godly wife of just this past September, 50 years that we've been married. I thank God. I thank God for my children and my grandchildren, my church, for all you folks and all the wonderful things that God does. But where's my focus? My focus is on the grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That became a key for my life. That was a place that I built an altar to, like Abraham. When God spoke to Abraham, he was an altar builder. Build altars in your lives. I built an altar there. That has so controlled my life now and served me since somewhere in, in, in the year 2000. Up until now, has so served me that I'm so thankful to God for what God spoke to me. Uh, Paul's writing to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people at his very own, zealous for good deeds. Uh, the witness of Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
fellow heirs of the same promise. Here it is, verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verses 13 through 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles. Can you see in these verses here the same language that we run into in 1 Peter? There were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And lastly, from 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter has some things to say here about wrong and right attitudes concerning being watchful. Verses 3 and 4, he describes the wrong attitude of the mockers. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Isn't it easy sometimes just to get that attitude when God is trying to deal in our life? I got plenty of time. I'll deal with it. I'll get around to it. You don't know that. In some other place in Scripture, it said, this very night, your soul might be required of you. We don't know. Then in verses 8 through 10, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Then in verses 11 through 13, he finishes by saying, he describes the right attitude of believers. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is that what you're looking for, brothers and sisters? Is that where your citizenship is in heaven? Or is it here in Knox County or what, what county is this? Anderson County or wherever it is that we're from or whatever. Is that what you're looking for? Is that what you want? Is that the desire of your heart? Or is all these other things, what does scripture tell us that our battle with, you know, the Christian life is a warfare. What are we to battle with? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Is the world not there? Just drive down to the mall. Just go on Amazon.com. Just listen to all of the ads for Christmas. Buy this, buy that, get this, get that. And so 
All of these things are vying for our attention. Basically what they're doing, they're trying, they're vying for our heart. The world is vying for our affections. Our affections should be solidly upon the darling of heaven. Our darling. Our darling Jesus. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I know that many, many, many could have done a much better job than I did. But I pray, Father, that things were said here this morning would help to wake up a sleepy and lethargic people because we all get that way. Father, I would like to say that if I actually saw you in the flesh, I never would have fallen asleep in the garden. I never would have done that. If I could have looked at God incarnate, if I could have seen my Messiah, Yeshua, with my own eyes, I never would have done that. But I know that I would have because I'm no better than the other disciples who fell asleep. Father, help us to take these exhortations that your son has given us in this discourse, this Olivet discourse about being watchful. I pray, Father, we would have ears to hear what God is saying to us, that it would impact our life, that it would change us, that it would, it would give direction and meaning and purpose to our life, that this would not just be some Bible verses that we've gone through, but something that would be an impartation by the Holy Spirit into our hearts, that what it is, Lord Jesus, that you wanted to do in the, in the lives of your disciples when you spoke these words to them, that these things would come to pass in our lives as well. But as always, it's only with your help. It's only with the help of the Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Would you do that for us? That we may live a life that is so honoring and, glor and glorifying to you that we would be an otherworldly people. The people would look at us and say, these people are not like other people. They're not getting caught up in these everyday affairs of life and the materialism and everything else. These are a people that are single-mindedly in love with their Lord and longing for his appearing, wanting him to come. That he is the only one. He's the only one that can change the treacherous course that this country is on. He's the only answer to this world. He's the only answer that there is. Lord, would we just live our lives as though you are the only answer to everything? That is my prayer that I pray in your precious name.